Hi, I'm Phoebe Rubin, and I'm 73 years old. And I'm Erica Tanamachi, and I'm 40. We are making a documentary about working women over 70 called Work While You Have the Light. This podcast profiles many of the women we've met along the way who continue to innovate and contribute to our society. They are artists, designers, store clerks, doctors, teachers, dancers, and more. They surround you in the grocery store, they sit next to you on the bus, and often go unnoticed. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy. We are so honored to be talking with May Lee Nay today. I met May Lee two years ago at the Otis College of Art and Design Fashion Show and Fundraiser, where she is a chairwoman on the board. May Lee's gracious and unassuming nature inspired us to include her in our documentary, as she runs an extremely successful business with thoughtful awareness and grace. May Lee is truly a self-made woman, and her life story is an inspiration. Maylee is president of Richard Nay & Associates, an investment advisory firm in Pasadena, which she joined in 1973. She was the business partner of her husband, Richard Nay, author of three books on the stock market, two of which she edited. She also was co-creator and editor of The Nay Report, an investment newsletter published from 1976 to 1999. Maylee has donated millions of dollars to various charities, and sits on the board of the USC Leonard Davis School of Gerontology, USC Pacific Asia Museum, the Huntington Library Art Museums and Botanical Gardens, and the Huntington Hospital. She is an avid reader, art collector, and master chef. Mei Li was born in Shanghai, China, and came to the United States when she was two years old. Mei Li is 74. Welcome to Work While You Have the Light, Mei Li. We are so happy to have you here today. Let's just start with how did you get to where you are now? Well, that's <laughs> I know that's, that's a long that's a long question. Um, if I, you know, really start from the beginning, it it all happens when I immigrated to this country, um, and I was very lucky to get here. When I was six months old, my mother had an opportunity to travel to the United States to visit her sister, and uh, my father said, "Yes, go. It's very rare." Um, but she was here for a very short time when she received a telegram from him and it said, don't come back. The communists are invading. Try to get us out of here. So it took her a year and a half to get a job with the International Monetary Fund and to qualify to send for us. Um, otherwise, we never could have gotten to this country. Um, the Chinese Exclusion Act had ended, but... Uh, It was replaced by uh, a quota of 105 immigrants per year for the Chinese. Um, So we got over on a special NS4 passport issued by the Senate for people who worked for international organizations. When we arrived, I mean, we left everything behind in China, and we settled in a very rundown section of Washington, D.C., but my parents were so happy to be reunited that they just were very determined to to make a good life in a new country. Shortly after we arrived, the Korean War broke out and it stirred up a tremendous amount of prejudice against Asians. And my father had been a bank manager in China, but he could not find a job in the United States not even as a bag boy at the Safeway grocery store. The the manager told 
him. Not enough of our boys have died for us to start hiring the likes of you. As it turned out, he got cancer and died three years later. I was five years old and started school then um, and experienced racial prejudice myself firsthand. And it, it really continued until my later years in high school. And that, when I look back, it was extremely beneficial because it really um, gave me my resilience, I would say, and also my sympathy for other people who suffer prejudice. Also, my mother, who obviously had the greatest influence on me since my father was gone, um, she was pretty overwhelmed with a full-time challenging job, running a household, raising two girls, learning a new language, a new culture, new country. And, and so therefore, she didn't pay that much attention to us. It really was perfect for me. I was a very independent, and I, I liked being left to my own devices. So, you know, that really sort of laid the foundation for how I came to be the kind of person I am today. When I, when I was about 10, I asked my mother for a pair of a black patent leather pumps, which the girls were wearing to church. And she said, you can have anything you want, but we don't have any money. So you have to earn it if you want those pumps. And that was the best advice she ever gave me. Um, even though she had a good job, money was scarce because she supported um, her six siblings in China and their families and did that faithfully for 30 years. And um, so we never really had very much ourselves. So when she said I had to earn money, I started a little business and went from door to door selling my services. Um, I would trim a bush for 10 cents a bush. Uh, rake a lawn for 50 cents, mow it for a dollar, wash a car for two dollars, wax it for five. And a couple years later, I started walking dogs and babysitting and selling potholders door to door that I had made at home. And, and um, that, that work ethic was, was also, you know, really, really valuable. Um, when, when I attended college, I, I paid my way by working as a secretary to the Dean of Liberal Arts during the day. And at night, I was a copy girl at the Syracuse Post-Standard. That was a local newspaper. I always had several jobs. And I really credit it with, um, you know, whatever success I've had, it, it set the tone uh, for the rest of my life. It's pretty remarkable. <laughs> it is. It's <laughs> an incredible story. <laughs> it is. Um, and, you know, I think, yeah, you often mention your mother as a huge influence in your life. Yeah. I think it's interesting uh, that she told you when you were so young that you can have whatever you want. You just have to work for it. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. 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 That was that was great. And um, I've had the same career in finance for 54 years, but I fell into it by accident um, when I was in school. Um, being secretary to the Dean of Liberal Arts during the day, I was often late to register for classes. But the dean would intercede with the dean of English for me and get me the classes that I wanted. And that worked for two years 
But when I started my junior year, I guess the dean of English got fed up. And when the dean of liberal arts tried that again, the dean of English said, tell her that if she can't show up in time to register for classes, she has to take what's left. And so um, I had sort of a stubborn, rebellious nature back then. Maybe I still do. (laughs) But (laughs) I called my mother up and I said, "Um, I'm quitting school. I'm coming home. Uh, I'm not going to be working this hard just in order to study Samuel Johnson. And, uh, (laughs) you know, in her characteristic way, she said, okay, okay, if you want to come home, come on home. As soon as I got home, I was assigned by a temp agency to type confirmations uh, for a brokerage firm. They didn't have room for me in the secretarial pool, so they put a, a desk and a typewriter in the broker's cubicle area for me. And as I was typing, I could hear the brokers telling their clients about a stock. They were only giving out very few shares to their clients. I was typing typing confirmations for 10, 25, 50 shares. And um, it was $2.25 a share. And so I, I said to my mother, you know, it sounds so great. Could I borrow $225 and I'll pay you back on the next payday? And I went to the president of the company and I said, uh, I'd like to buy 100 shares of the stock that I keep hearing about. And so uh, at first he was shocked. And then I think he was amused that some unknown temp who he'd never laid eyes on would be asking for you know more shares than some of the favorite customers were getting. But, you know, finally he sputtered, okay, okay, if you want to buy 100 shares, you can have 100 shares. So two months later, that stock was at $60 a share. And and I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, if money is to be made this easily, this is really the business for me. (laughs) (laughs) I've learned a lot since then. But... um, (laughs) Two years later, I passed the exam, uh, the brokerage exam, and became registered. The first brokerage firm I worked at, I was the only woman. And the last firm I worked with before I left to become an investment advisor, I was uh, one of two women. So, you know, that's how far back it was. And now now there's lots of women in, in the industry. I think this started... Uh, when you decided that you wanted a pair of patent leather pumps. <laughs> I think <laughs> all of this led yeah. <laughs> led you down a road. It did. It did. You know, now you're this incredibly successful first-generation immigrant, um, which, if you know, also we bet, you know, wasn't very easy at the time that you did immigrate. Can you talk about your experience of being a minority female from a low-income family? Well, the... There, there were advantages and disadvantages, of course. Um, the disadvantages of having facing racial prejudice is that you're bullied a lot. Um, when I was growing up, um, walking home from school, you know, kids would jump out of bushes and hit me over the heads with their books, and I was called pancake face and yellow face, and and a very popular little jingle. Chin Chin Chinaman was very popular back then, and kids would sing it to me. One game we were playing, a a boy tripped me up, and I fell on my chin, 
and blood was all over and the teacher nurse had to take me to the doctor to get stitches. I still have that scar on my chin today, but it really toughened me up. It turned me into a fighter and it was just a, a fact of life. And we did experience racial prejudice and housing. When we tried to move to a better area, we were often told, oh, well, there's three of you. That means you have to have um, at least two bedrooms, three bedrooms. And, you know, we were, we were trying to get, you know, one bedroom. Or, you know, if they insisted on three bedrooms, we were trying to get two bedrooms. It was always an excuse not to rent to us. Is that sort of how you went on your life moving forward? Just yes. almost expecting the prejudice, but not mm-hmm. even being, not, not, not being phased, but, but not letting it change your course. Absolutely. And it also got to the point where it didn't bother me that much. Maybe I had developed a, you know, kind of a thick skin. I think I did. It just kind of ran, ran like water off my back. And, uh, it had its advantages. <laughs> I remember every three years we got to go back to Taiwan to visit because Taiwan was the only part of free China. And the customs lines used to be very long. And my mother would always say, it's important to dress very poorly and look like Chinese refugees because then they won't stop us or pay attention to us. And we did that. I I still do that. I still can blend into a crowd. I tend to underdress rather than overdress. I find many advantages to not being noticed. And and maybe that's the other side of not wanting to be noticed and not wanting to be, you know, picked on. But the advantage of not being noticed is that you can do a lot and get somewhere without resistance. That's right. And that's a huge strength. And your mother knew that. So she, mm-hmm. she was very strong, just different. Yes. Hers was more quiet and understated, but she was very strong in that way that she figured it out. She did. Yeah. And she had, you know, lived through wars, the war with Japan and China, and um, then, then, you know, escaped when the, before the communists came. But she was very accustomed to hardship. And she had lived this beautiful, luxurious childhood. So she had to adapt a great deal herself. Well, Maylee, thank you so much for being so forthright and telling us your story. It's really extraordinary, this piece of your history. Oh, you're so welcome. I want to shift gears a little bit, and I want to talk about the value of work for women regarding self-esteem and how your career has affected your self-esteem, your sense of self-worth. It's meant everything. It's been enormous. You hear from books and different people that you should follow your own light, that people should believe in themselves. And I think that is the ultimate goal. But it doesn't just happen. Um, I always tell people what you should do is develop life skills. If you do that, the belief in yourself is something that happens automatically. Um, Life itself is sort of the best teacher, but um, I found that if you combine that with a lot of reading, that is just the best. It was the best for me. I mean, 
I never graduated with a degree in English, but I never stopped reading. And certain books were extremely valuable, um, like uh, the, the Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck taught me that most people can do most anything as long as they give it enough time. And I have reminded myself of this many, many times, especially when I'm try- trying to assemble something, which I'm not good at. <laughs> Thank you, say, Ikea, for that lesson. <laughs> <laughs> right, just give it enough time and you can do it. And when you have successes, including you know how to pick yourself up after failures, then you start uh, listening to your own instincts and start believing in yourself. And it comes from having successes. My ultimate goal is really to have a happy life. I have used so many times in my mind, and which I follow, and that is show up, listen, and try to laugh. And for me, the most important one is the first one, show up. Um, I always try to show up. And I would say everything good that's ever happened to me has been because I made the effort to show up, even when I didn't want to. So when you practice these things, you develop the self-esteem you're talking about. Can you talk just a little bit about about the value of work? Work gives a person purpose, focus, and it gives you the ability to give and to contribute and to do something beneficial for other people. In later life, a lot of people volunteer their time and accomplish a great deal and, and don't earn anything. But if you need your income, and I don't, I don't really need income at this point, but I still believe in earning income for work well done. The security, you have physical comfort from that, and then you have the mental security and comfort from doing something that is creative. Um, and you can choose to make work creative or not. I mean, you can get into a rut, but you don't have to let yourself do that. If you're getting into a rut, it's time to be creative and think about ways to make the work more interesting. But, but now my work really is a way of giving back, both my for-profit and my non-profit work. Do you see yourself continuing to work indefinitely? Do you think there's a point where you won't? There could be a point where I won't. If I feel like I can't do as good a job, definitely I will not continue to work. And the one thing that might uh, decrease my ability is my vision, because I have glaucoma and I've had multiple surgeries in both eyes and I don't see nearly as well as I used to. I still can see well enough to manage accounts, work with the computer, work with portfolios, see numbers, do all that. But if the time ever comes where I can't see well enough, that would certainly be the time where I would quit that work. Have you had a moment where you've thought about retiring? Yes, I I thought about retiring when I started working on um, boards for nonprofits because they take up a lot of time. And I I wouldn't have had the time uh, if my husband was still alive because when you're single, you just have so much more control over your time. But when I got really busy with them, I I thought, you know, should I retire and just devote my time to this? But the thing that made me decide to continue working was that 
I realized I can do both. And uh, I can enjoy both and still be effective. So it's not taking away from my regular job. Maylee, what would you say you're most proud of? My relationships with people. I think in the end, that's the most important thing that matters. And it's important to give your relationships time and the work it takes and the attention it takes. And I always put people first. What are your plans for the future? I always come to the same conclusion. I'm not a kind of person that has a five-year, 10-year, 20-year plan. I'm always conscious that we could... All of us drop dead at any minute. <laughs> That's one thing. <laughs> Another thing is, um, I'm very optimistic uh, about the future. I don't really think about dropping dead. And I kind of think that whatever happens, it's going to be something good or something that you can turn into something good. Continuing to learn things. I love learning things and having new challenges. So I, I know that's going to continue. I just don't know what it's going to be. I'm sure that it will. <laughs> um, so we have uh, a little series of questions that we borrowed from uh, the show Inside the Actor's Studio. And um, so I'm going to ask you a few questions and then just whatever comes to mind. Just um, Okay. Okay. So the first one is, what is your favorite phrase? Do it now. Or very similar to the Nike phrase, just do it. But do it now is a little different from just do it. Just do it means whether you feel you're capable or not. But do it now means get it done. I'm a great believer in getting things done. And um, what would you say are your most marked characteristics? People tell me I'm calm. Almost everyone says that. I was very surprised in, in, you know, past years that people keep, keep repeating that. So I would have to say that is, um, I would never have picked it myself. What <laughs> 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 um, would you have picked? Hardworking, focus, determination. What is your current state of mind? I'm always optimistic. And I'm, I'm a pretty naturally happy person. I wake up happy. If you could have another career choice, um, which you could have, what else would you think that you might want to do different from the one that you're doing? Something that's always interested you, perhaps? Well, there's a field that I love now, and I'm so glad I didn't discover it when I was younger, and that is art history. You know, that is such a rich field, and it trains you in so many ways, the, the most important uh, of which is to see. To, to really understand what you're looking at and to see more. And I, I love art history. I, you know, can't draw a straight line, but I really appreciate art. And uh, I could have gone down that road and had a, a career in that road, and it doesn't pay anything, so I'm glad I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to make money. <laughs> I started trying to think of what I wanted to do because we we grew up without you know having much and one reason I didn't go into art history is we never had any art hanging on the walls we never had any music playing in the house everything was a very plain bare existence 
And, and I knew that I just wanted to have something better in life. Well, now you have an exquisite art collection. I do. It's beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Well, we also want to close the podcast with um, an inspirational quote or poem that you may have. One quote that has really been so influential in my life is that last one I shared with you from Anna Quinlan, show up, listen, and try to laugh. And that says it all. It's, it's that simple. That encompasses being a good friend. It encompasses being dependable. It encompasses opening yourself up to experiences um, and to be adventurous. And I guess if you can laugh, you, you, you're not taking it all that seriously. That's right. I mean, not really. Yeah, so it puts things in perspective. I love that quote. Thank you for telling us that quote. I'm going to have to put that on my computer. <laughs> That's a good one, a really good one. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you so yes. much. Oh, you're so it's welcome. been wonderful. It's just been wonderful. It's been fun for me. I, I love your questions and and love the both of you. So thank you so much too. This podcast is produced by Phoebe Rubin and Erica Tanamachi. Original music composed by Jose Gonzalez Granero. Thank you for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation with you. <laughs>